Welcome to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley, where we sit down and talk with strength coaches, personal trainers, nutritionalists, and other professionals in the fitness and strength and conditioning field to help athletes, parents, coaches, small business owners help level up their game to provide athletes and clients world-renowned success, either in the weight room, on the field, or on the platform. Enjoy today's episode. On episode 7 of the Thirst for More podcast, I sit down with my friend Justin DeBlau, who is currently a PhD candidate at Kansas State University working in the Functional Intensity Training Laboratory. And his research is focused on biofeedback for individualized exercise prescription. Me and Justin met at Purdue during both of our undergrad years, um, working in the Colby Fitness Center at Purdue University. And we had some great memories. We had a lot of classes together. And he was somebody that I kind of gravitated towards in terms of building a relationship and friendship with considering we had a lot of classes together we worked together we had similar interests uh, we both loved training and getting after it and we both made a lot of stupid mistakes during that time um, both with our own training and just also kind of educationally um, but at the same time we kind of grew a good friendship there and Justin then after Purdue he went on to Minnesota where he got his master's degree and he spent a little bit of time there underneath Cal Deeds and then he's also Uh, been a certified personal trainer since he was at Purdue with me as well and so he's kind of moved all over the country kind of chasing trying to find the understanding of certain adaptations from training and I know in the field we need more people like Justin to have the practical side um, but also with the research driven side as well so he's not just one trick pony so to speak um, he's also competed in USA weightlifting uh, in soccer, and he is also currently training for a duathlon with his wife, Amanda, who is also a Purdue graduate who I also got to know really well during my time there as well. Uh, Justin teaches undergraduates basic exercise science and physiology-based principles as part of his uh, job with Kansas State, and I would like to say that this interesting conversation that we have with Justin, blending academia, understanding heart rate variability, and all of that kind of training and how that intertwines, this is a good hour and a half episode of just basically diving into that, because I will admit that that's definitely not my strong suit, and here we have somebody that's actually in the trenches every day studying it, teaching it, and and trying to make a living off of trying to teach others about this as well. So... If you want to find out or reach more and get in touch with Justin, you can find him on Instagram at TheBlueGuy. That's T-H-E-E-B-L-U-E-G-U-Y. He's really outgoing, outspoken. He's got a lot of good stuff and information um, in his noggin. And we've also going to have some different research studies in our show notes. So you can check those out if you happen to like, man, I kind of want to know what he's talking about. He actually has given me the articles to be able to put in the show notes so that you can basically go dig those up on your own and actually read through the full research, which we talk about how that's important as well, rather than just trying to read the abstract and come to some kind of conclusion. So this is a very science heavy based episode. Hopefully there's some stuff that you can take away. I know that we try to break it down in layman's terms so that it's easily digestible by most people but this was one of my favorite episodes that I've recorded so far we just it's just a really good way for me to learn something from somebody that's in a completely different realm of education and background in terms of the science aspect because I'm on the opposite end with the practical side working with athletes and clients every day so enjoy the episode
Hey, Justin, this is Brandon. How's it going, man? That's uh, good, man. It's good. Just hot here. Yeah. Yep. How's uh, how's school and everything going with the whole coronavirus thing? Uh, man, it's it's totally different than anything else. Like everything's online now, so teaching lectures and labs online is you know exercise science. It's a in person field that you need to be touching people, interacting with people, seeing things. And now that we're doing it remotely, it's it's really hard to figure out how to transition that information um, to the students. We, we were able to, before everything broke down and the university shut down, we were able to go video ourselves doing a bunch of labs on ourselves. And then we allow students to watch those videos and try to assess what's going right and what's wrong. But um, it's just, it's weird not being in a lab. Like that's where we feel most home for the teaching. Right. So, um, you know, I know you're at uh, Kansas State University and you're a graduate teaching assistant there and you're doing some different studies and looking at different things. Um, for the listeners, give us a, an idea of what, what you do at Kansas State as a graduate teaching assistant and then also what's your, in a very brief sense, what's your studying and what you hope to get out of your PhD program that we can kind of uh, go to the nuts and bolts of that a little bit once you kind of break that down. Yeah. So I'm one of about 15 to 20 graduate teaching students within the department. And we are just split into exercise phys students and what's sort of more close to health behavior um, groups. And I teach eight hours a week. So I teach four two hour long labs that can be anything from research methods at undergraduate level to um, exercise testing and prescription, which is your senior level course, which preps them for the ACSM exercise physiology this exam, um, to exercise behaviors and how that works within um, the social ecological model, built environments, and public health. So there's a variety of topics that we that I teach. Um, some that I don't teach is like the exact anatomy and physiology lab where we dissect cats and stuff and go through that. Um, so in addition to the teaching of the eight hours, I have two hours of office hours where I just sit in my office waiting for students to pop in at any time, which in three years I've had three students show up in my <laughs> office. So it's sort of the, uh, opportunity that students never take privilege of, but the ones that do come, um, I think they hopefully get something out of it. But as I said, with being online now, my office hours are 24 seven. So I've been doing way more Zoom calls now. Like the other week, I had eight hours of Zoom calls with students, one-on-ones. So that was way more student interaction than I was uh, been going through. Um, additionally, I mentor multiple master students and undergraduate students. And if they're working on a project, I'm supervising that project directly. So just like my, my boss supervises my research projects, I now supervise theirs. So if they're doing an intervention, if they're running statistics, if they're submitting IRBs or recruiting participants, I oversee all that to make sure that they're following the protocol and they're doing it the most efficiently. And then if they submit to a conference or they submit a a paper to a journal, I'm editing and proofing that to make sure it's ready to go and giving guidance. And then no, you're there for just life stuff that happens. If something comes up like academic wise or family wise, you're kind of a sounding wall for your, your students as well. 
Um, and then anything that's major, I then relay up to my boss. Like, hey, some X is going on with Joey. I think maybe you might want to get in the loop and talk about it. So it's, it's nice that I get that ability to sort of see what it's like to be a professor down the road because I'll have to do it with my students. But you get a lot of things on your plate going at the same time because you're also taking classes. So I'm in my last class right now, which is experimental design for statistics. And it's not my favorite. It's yeah. uh, But you learn a lot with statistics and you figure out that a lot can be misled or hidden within statistics. And um, just you need to take extra time when looking at your data right. and other people's data. Yeah. Um... I think that's really good that someone like you is obviously working with students like that because I know when um, I met you at Purdue and then obviously we were both doing personal training at Purdue and then working at the old Colby Center and then the, the new T-Rec, which is com completely different now. But um, there are a lot of good memories there that, um, you know, somebody in the, the academic side of things actually has the, the hands-on and the practical side because unfortunately – there's, it's too common. You get basically this division of pure academics and pure hands-on real world life. And then a lot of people have a hard time bridging that gap. And when you can get somebody that's got a blend of both, um, I think that's very valuable for the students to see that like that's ideally that's the perfect model that you can understand the science, but you can bridge the gap of the practicality because there's, there's some studies that look might, might, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you'll probably talk about that provide some good insight from the science, but then it's kind of like, well, how do we practically put this into a training model or a, a training program or, or get it to work with, you know, these things, studying different socioeconomic issues. How do you make that actually feasible to be implemented into the healthcare system, so to speak? Um, that, that can be the challenging part. So that's, that's very cool that um, you're, you're able to do that. Um, go into depth a little bit about what you are particularly studying. So um, I know that based upon the stuff that you've kind of sent me, there's a lot of stuff on HRV. So I guess just from the get go, explain to the listeners what HRV is and then what you're kind of doing with your stuff at Kansas state. So HRV is in the simplest terms, it's the variability between successive heartbeats. So if you remember from our cardiovascular phys classes, you have the QR complex and you have that R wave that where it's the spike in QRS complex. And we're really just looking at the variability between successive R waves. And so there's a variety of different ways you can assess it. And um, it's a signal of sort of how the autonomic nervous system is working. And I got into HRV really because I was interested in biofeedback systems and assessing how the body responds to a straining, training stimulus or a stress. And HRV is just one of them. And by no means is it the, the gold standard is the best or am, am I saying like, this is the one we should all use. But given my situation where I'm at and the feasibility of doing it and how feasibility for other people to use it, I think HRV was the one that, that fit with me because um, we could also use hormones, we could use psychological questionnaires. And so I just wanted to see how we can use the body's response, the individual's response to how we can improve exercise prescription or training prescription down the road. And I got into HRV uh, my first year here. Uh, I was working with one of my committee members who's at the University of Central Missouri. 
and we did a study that was trying to overlap, you know, training prescription. I pulled hormones as well. And after running a bunch of hormone assays, I was like, you know what, this, there's no way that a personal trainer or training conditioning coach is going to be able to do a hormone analysis before an athlete comes in for exercise prescription or training study. Like that's stuff that even at the, the OTC that they're not quick on, or it's not easily yeah. done. So I sort of pulled back from that and HRV was sort of the, the best thing that remained for me. Gotcha. Yeah. I, the first time I got introduced to HRV, which, which um, what was the system that I was using? I know I, you plugged into your phone. It's been a while since I've used it. Um, I think it's the one that Joel Jameson. Um, supported. Oh yeah. Back from his uh, MMA conditioning book that came yeah. out in yeah. like 2011, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that the Omega wave is big and then there's some, some, some other ones that I definitely know it's a lot more feasible now um, from a, from a user standpoint, at least for the average trainee or athlete, you can usually get these applications with them, you know, plug it into your phone and, um, get that heart rate availability in the, in the morning and, and have an idea. And I know whenever I used it, I use it for probably almost a year relatively consistently. And then just what I found was I was so in tune with my body that I knew kind of like as the day went, how I felt, whether I was going to have a good day of a moderate day or a bad day. And then I kind of tracked over time how I was uh, in comparison to how I felt with the, what the, the data was giving me. And then I pretty much stopped using it because after a year, I was like, well, I, I think I've got a good enough system that I can understand because I'm also one of those people where like, I may only get six hours of sleep one night, but I also might have one of the best training sessions I've had in months. Just, you know, you get in there and get moving and it, and it all, all kind of clicks. And um, like you said, that, that heart rate isn't the end all be all to, to recovery and how, how you're going to do, but it's a good, I would say it's a good marker for the average person. So um, with that, with that HRV, like I said, you've got some different studies on here and there's a lot that I'm going to have linked if people want to look at them. Um, what, um, looking at some of these that I have in front of me, what are you basically finding within a lot of these, these studies with the, cause it looks like you've got a lot of, um, I want to say endurance and elite endurance athletes from the, from the, the studies that I'm seeing that you sent me. Um, what are you kind of finding with, within all these studies and what are the, um, what are the, the take home points, but then if there's some other particular pieces of information that you found, what are, what are those as well? Yeah. So the, the Finns have been doing a lot of really cool research on HRVE. They sort of dipped away from it in the recent years, but as you mentioned, a lot of the research is done on endurance training because it, the ANS is really people associated with more in an aerobic or cardiovascular um, response to training. And they've used HRV to guide training versus predetermined training. So you've probably done it or seen it online. Everyone puts these prescriptions online, run your first 10K, run your first 10, you know, uh, half marathon. And they just give this really general prescription for how you should train. And so what they generally do is they have a control group use that predetermined training system, and then they use an HRV guided group. And every morning those individuals get up, they take their HRV, and based on the results from their HRV test in the morning, it determines the intensity or duration of their training for that day. And 
HRV on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't really tell you a lot. So if I just take my reading today and it says I have 70 milliseconds of variability between my R to R intervals, that single day doesn't really tell me a whole lot because as we know, the system responds like as a summated effect, right? Yesterday's training, the day before, they all sort of summate into how I feel today. So what we use is this rolling seven-day average. So I take what you've, what you've responded in the last seven days, and I create these windows of thresholds of you know, how far out are you from your average and are you above or below. And once if you're within your normal HRV reading, that usually gives you the green light to bust ass and go after it in your training to the day. It gives you green light to do your hard training. So generally they provide those guys to do high intensity training that day or increase the distance. And days where their HRV is below their normal, it's when they back off and it's active recovery or it's a lower intensity day where say, instead of being up at 70 to 80% of heart rate max, these guys are down at 50 to 60% of heart rate max and they're training at a lower intensity because they know that if they push them too hard, they're going to you know, either overreach too far or train or something like that. And so what we found is that when you do HRV guided training on a variety of different metrics from a 3000 meter um, time trial to um, max speed, stuff like that, that they are performing better than a predetermined block. So this, this would match with what you would assume, right? You would think that if I just gave some random individual a training system, a training block that had nothing to really do with how you have done training or how well you respond to training, that if I individualize it, it would work better for you, right? Yeah, yep. And so that's, that's really the assumptions you would make is what we're finding. But we're mainly seeing this works with endurance athletes. The, the literature on strength training athletes really isn't there. That's where you see more of the velocity-based training that like Will Fleming is using yeah. and Brian Mann are doing. Like, that's where you see that come into. And so I think the question going forward with this is how do those two interact? How do we figure out what works for strength, for strength athletes and what works for endurance athletes? Because most of your basketball players, football players, like, they're not a single system athlete. They're using they're running and they're lifting and they may be doing both in the same day. They have practice and they lift that day. Like how do we, how do we match two different systems together to prescribe the best training for them? And that, I think that's where the literature is trying to go. But as you probably know, getting access to those athletes and being able to train them and do studies on them is, you know, a gold mine if you find it, but nobody wants you to do it or will let you do it. Right. Yeah. And I, I know that, um, whenever because obviously when we write kids training programs we have a a idea of what we want the training to look like but we have to we adjust everything every month um just one our billing goes from a monthly standpoint so from a programming standpoint it makes it easy you know if you sign up for four months of training then i know i've got at least four months of a training block that i can put together and i can kind of map out where i want it to go but as i know each month some kids progress faster than others. Some kids need to work this movement pattern a little bit more. And then I also tell the other, the, especially the older kids, you know, if, if you're doing something and one week isn't as good as the last, or it, if things don't feel good, don't feel that you're obligated to do what's on that piece of paper, because that training program is only worth the piece of paper that it's on. You know, you can have a bad day at school. Your girlfriend could have broke up with you. You, 
you might have had a really hard practice and you still came in anyways today instead of pushing it back tomorrow because you didn't have a ride to get to the gym. Like there's just so many different factors with a 10 to 17 year old kid that they seem to think if it's on paper, I got to do it, which we know with the athletes that we work with, they're usually more of the, I want to say the better athletes that you're probably going to find on the field and court if they're doing to a semi-private training facility, you know, the kid that's not that good probably doesn't have the drive to go do that. And so they're, they're, they're the kids that are driven to complete everything no matter what, because that's what a lot of sport coaches push on them is to, you know, if you're not, if you're not feeling crappy and you're not feeling like you got a good workout in, then it, it wasn't a good training day. And that, that HRV system kind of shows that, you know, you don't have to, if you're not feeling 100%, like you said, it, 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 to us, it makes sense. But I think a lot of the old school mindset behind sport coaches is that you got to kill them every day to get better. And it's like, you know, you got to kind of listen to what your athletes are, are trying to tell you. And at least a semi-private model, we can control that tremendously more than, let's say, you know, a high school or college program um, where the, most of the kids are doing the same program in the given 60, 75-minute window that they that they are allotted with their, their strength coach. Um, but like, I'm glad you brought up the velocity-based training as well with Mann and Fleming, um, both of which I will be speaking to you on here at some point. Um, but um, that, that I think is something that parents need to kind of understand and sport coaches need to understand that, that, that heart rate variability, while you can't measure it in practice, you know, your kid probably is more than likely not going to lie to you if they're having a really crummy day or they're not feeling good. Like, for the better of the athlete, you should back off a little bit. And that's, that's cool that that's what you're kind of finding with that science yeah. that you're digging through. And we, we've all seen this somewhere before and we've heard it before. It's quality over quantity, right? You, yeah. you can work and work and work, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get better. It's the, the quality of the practice, the quality of the training that makes a big difference. And the data shows that, you know, with some of this HRV training that they can train less than the predetermined programs and they do better so it's it all comes down to that modulation on the individual and it's it's really hard within sport teams you know you have the privilege of being able to work with a one-on-one client and you can maybe manipulate that but when you talk about your strength conditioning coaches at the professional or the collegiate level um or the semi-private level like if you got 15 athletes how do you individualize per individual that's that's where it becomes really tough and i i feel for those guys but I know some of them, you know, Sean Arndt, who's now at South Carolina, uh, he was working with the Rutgers women's soccer team, and he did a lot of this stuff. He built trust with the, the sports staff and the strength conditioning team there, and they allowed him to, with his research team, start to figure out these different ways to modulate the training for the women's soccer team, and they had phenomenal results. They were able to detect iron deficiencies in girls before even – the, the test showed up. They were able to back off training based on catapult data and field data. Like they were able to do some really cool stuff because once you build trust with the coaches and you start to measure one thing at a time, whether it's RPE or if it's, you know, a shrimp or something like that, if you just start measuring something, you measure consistently, you start to see the trends. And, you know, I feel bad for coaches that have eight teams on their plate and, you know, or if you got like the swim team, you got all these athletes, it's so hard to track all that stuff. And so I think there are some companies now that are trying to build software that you can put that stuff in there so that you don't have to do all the manual calculations that, that is like researchers do. When we do an intervention, I'm manually calculating all the different changes in HRV and threshold windows. And if you got 
50 athletes and you don't have time for that. So we're trying to find ways to alleviate some of that pressure for coaches. And we're not saying like, this is what you have to do, but it's an insight into your athletes that you might be able to benefit from because when you look at the data and you see individuals with the exact same training background or you assume same training background and you know, the mean response only counts for 50% of the, the athletes, you get your high responders and low responders and how do you account for them? And it just makes it HRV might be an insight to that. The velocity based training can be an insight to that. I know when I was at Minnesota, Cal Dietz was using velocity based training to regulate within sessions with swimmers and within, um, hockey players. And it was really cool to see that as soon as they hit a, a velocity that was not within the prescription done and they were on to the next thing. Yeah, that, um, that, that's, that's really good. They, um, I know the, um, I, I kind of talked with, you brought up the velocity based training and then the, the RPE. And that's, um, one thing that I've actually kind of played around recently with my own stuff is, uh, Brian Mann's APRE method, which, you know, you basically work up based upon whether it's a three or a six or 10, whatever system you're using with his. And then whatever you happen to get for that top end day kind of dictates your next set, whether you're going uh, up or down. And then, you know, like you said, the velocity based training kind of does that too, is if you can maintain that velocity um, within a certain, certain load parameter, then you can stay there. And if you can, you know, increase your velocity, then you, you go up. And if it drops down, then you're either done or you stop. And I know, um, I know that when I was at Purdue a little bit, they used some of the Tendo units and stuff at the time, and they kind of competed on that, that velocity. And then, you know, they, they had a prescribed number of sets that they were supposed to do at a minimum, but then, then if they continued to get faster, they could keep going. And as soon as they stopped, they stopped. And, um, that, that's something that I definitely know that when I get to talk to Brian Mann about the velocity, because I know he definitely is really, really intelligent when it comes to that. And I really can't wait to pick his brain about how he uses that to determine their, their training. And um, so, so you've obviously been around that and the HRV and that kind of gets me to my next question is that, um, you know, being a personal trainer and then being in a, a sports performance intern and obviously competing in weightlifting and, and now you're, you're doing some uh, duathlon. I hope I said that right with your wife, um, how, how does that, how do those experiences help shape the way that you look at the studies that you're doing and the, the, the data as it comes in? Um, I think it's made me more of a, a skeptic, right? When I see things or it makes you sort of analyze it more because I heard when I first got here, I started meeting with the strength conditioning coaches at K-State with basketball and they're like, Hey, it's great that you guys are doing this research, but doesn't mean shit to me because I can't do any of this stuff that you do in the lab. And so it started making me look at the studies, like what can I actually take from that and implement it into my training? Like depending on the equipment, depending on the time, what can I incorporate? And so I've really tried to pick the things that I get the most bang for my buck with without having to spend a lot of time in the gym. Because when we were undergrads, I don't know how many hours we spent in the gym just just training to just train. Yeah. But as you get older, life happens and I don't want to spend two hours in the gym anymore. And I want to get in, I want to get out and I want to be effective with my stuff. And I, I still want to maintain progress. Right. So for me, um, I, 
I purchased a, a Polar watch a while back and I started to use that as some, it allow, it does some of the tracking for me. So it does, it calculates trips for me. It calculates the strain and tolerance rate for me. So I sort of use that to sort of take away some of that added stress for me that that's my feedback system. So if I look at the, the strain from my polar information and it looks like I'm do I'm sort of flatlining on my, my strain. I, and my HRV looks good. I usually push it that day. Either I go for a more intense run or I back off on my runs if it's down. But since I talked about it, it works well with endurance training and we don't, so if it's, if it's down, it's telling me not to endurance train or aerobic train that day. I have found that in my own practice by using those days as resistance training days, I've done pretty well. So we don't have the data yet really to show what a poor HRV really is matching with. And if it means you can resistance train or not, but in my own practice, if HRV tells me high go endurance, and if it says low, I just like, well, shit, that might just mean the opposite. So I just started resistance training and just using my body to respond to the training and not trying to push every workout. If I start seeing it, my performance in the gym starts to go down in a single session, then you, you just, you just pull out. Like there's no, there's no need to keep pushing it. And I know that I'm probably not the same athlete that you're seeing in the studies. They're the 2018 to 24 year old undergrads. And I know my body's not going to respond the same way. So I'm not expecting to see the same curves and the same responses in the studies. So I start to, to cherry pick the studies when I'm trying to implement for myself is I'm in my thirties now. So if the data doesn't have um, individuals in my age range, I'm not super keen on the results. I'm sort of a little skeptical that it may not really apply to me. I know I'm not going to, I don't, my hormone levels aren't the same. My knees hurt. My shoulders hurt. Like I'm not doing the same thing. So I think when people start to read the studies, find out what you know the subjects match with you and do the, the training that those individuals actually do right i'm not going to train like a basketball player so some of the things that basketball players put in these studies they don't roll over to what i may implement into mine but if there's certain nuggets like i still do my weightlifting my snatches so if they're like snatches within basketball players or power training and basketball players well i'm, I'm not quite basketball player height i'm not six six but i'm six yeah. two so some of that might carry over to me. So I might consider some of that, the power methods that they're using for basketball players, because it's somewhat fits my body type, but I just need the little pieces of it. So I don't take in, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to implement the full training profile of what these guys did, but it's the one piece out of that, that might apply to me. I take from it. I don't know if that really answered your question because a lot of these, you just got to pick and choose instead of taking, I don't, I never take a single study and say, I'm going to take this and this is how I'm going to train because it never, it's never going to fully apply to you. Just like it never is going to apply to your athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. You can't, even with the, you know, like the, the kids that we work with, like we can't, we can't just say, Oh, we're going to do just, you know, regular linear periodization across the board because we, we can't, we can't do that. There's too many different kids and there's too many different uh, body types and recovery and, and how they, they, their, their background as a whole, you know, we get some kids that have maybe only done sports for one year and, you know, their, their athleticism's on the low end. And then you get that kid that's, 
Um, like we've got an all-state tennis player that I talked about with uh, somebody last week <clears throat> that, you know, day two walking in the gym, he's box squatting 300 for reps. Like that's not common in a tennis player. So, you know, your training program, yeah, your training program is going to be a little bit different for that kid versus your probably normal junior, senior tennis player that probably, you know, has never barbell squatted in, in his life. Uh, let alone be able to put 300 pounds on his back. So that the individuality is, is important. And like, so you, you're not necessarily taking that one study and then putting it across the board. And I think as training in the fitness industry as a whole is that you, you just can't do that. And I'm, and everyone knows that I'm a big conjugate guy, but I, I don't, I don't blanketly give everybody the same kind of idea that, you know, some, some people get more, some people get less, some people get different, exercise variations upon what they need. And that's the nice thing about training, but with the field that we're in, it's really, because there's so, there's not, there's never one training program that's ever the same ever. And so you can't really test to see if this program is better than another one versus another one. It, it, it's kind of uh, mixed results, I guess. There's just too many variables to control. And so you were kind of talking, of, I think you briefly got into it a little bit with the, when you were looking at these studies, you know, you're, you kind of, you did, I don't know if you meant to talk about it, but you started to list limitations within these studies that you're seeing for the, the average either coach or person that would be listening to this, like as somebody that's in that, that setting, what do you recommend if because people will share studies all the time, either on Facebook or Instagram, or the study shows the, they basically give the conclusion. Here's what the results were, but they don't talking about, the sample pool and, and the limitations that they had, or even, you know, what the demographics were, like you, you briefly talked about, and this was done on basketball players or not or whatever. What can you tell the average person to kind of pay attention to in some of these studies and how to just not read the abstract and being like, oh, X, Y, Z was going to give me ABC result. Yeah. So this generally the first area that I go to and every, every researcher is going to look at something different. Like one of my good friends, the first thing he goes into is the methods and he looks like he tries to tear apart the methods and figure out what they could have done wrong or systematic errors. And for me, I go right to the figures because I need to see what they are going to talk about before I read about what they're going to talk about. So I go straight to the figures because that's, that's the visual representation of their data. And that's for me, that's where the, usually the hidden message is, is within. And in most articles, you see mean reported data, right? Mean and standard deviation. And right there, that to me is the critical piece. What does that standard deviation look like? Is it a large standard deviation or is it, is it tight? If it's tight, there's something possibly good in that, that data set there. If it's wide, that means you got high responders, low responders, and you may have no idea if that's going to work for you. So as, as a researcher, as a student, like I'm really not as interested in mean reported data as I am as in individual reported data. So there's a slight move in the research now to not just report the mean and standard deviation, but actually put on a, a graph the individual responses across all participants so that you can sort of see what that looks like. And we started to see that coming back in 2001 with a, a Bouchard study that showed that when a heterogeneous population 
they were in the heritage family study. They all did the same aerobic based training. And the main factors that you would count for age, sex, and that fourth, they only counted for um, less than 11% of the variability in the population. And so you had like 50% that were high responders and 50% were slow. So it, it really meant nothing. Like that intervention did nothing in, in my view. Like it was right across the board. So I think when you go to look, and he showed that, it was nice that he took each individual and put it on a, a table so you could see this S curve, right? Some people, they had worse performance than when they started and some had a huge uh, increase up to 50% afterwards. So I think if you go to look right at the data, the results in the tables and the figures, if it doesn't look like something that is what you're going to want to come out of it, if the standard deviation is really wide, it's, it's probably not going to be that helpful yeah. because you, the odds of you getting a, a good response from it may not be very good. And it's the commitment that you then have to put into your athletes to possibly get a good response it's too much risk for me. So I usually go right to the, the figures and assess those. And then as I look through the methods, if you have, you know, a 5% increase is a 5% increase on a high school athlete important. And is 5% increase on a division one athlete important. Like for a high school athlete, I would probably hope I'd get more than a 5% increase. Right. right? Yep. Yep. Like, if you're only getting 5%, like, what are you, what are you doing? Those kids are just waiting to, to improve. But if you get a 5% increase on a division one athlete who's looking to go pro. Yeah. I'm probably going to see how I can use that in my system somewhere. So I think the two things you go to is the figures and then you go to the demographics of your, your group, because if it doesn't match with who you're going to use it on and you get a, a large deviation, it, it's, it's probably not useful, even if they found statistically significant information. Like we hide behind statistically significant information or we don't include stuff because it's not statistically significant. But the same point is if Usain Bolt gets a 2% increase on his time, that's incredibly significant in application. Yeah, yep. But for, that for may- someone at his level, absolutely. But it may never show up as statistically significant. So you, you have to look at the, the figures and you have to look at the results as your, your key go-to. And if it looks good, then, then you go down to like how they interpret it. And if you get a lot of these applied journals, like JSCR does a great job at saying, how would you apply? What's the practical applications behind your study? And if you know, a good author is going to provide you something that you can take away and use, if they can't explain their data and explain how you would use it in your team or your athletes, then they're probably an individual who doesn't have that background in application and they're trying to reach for what they think their data is telling you. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a very good way to put that. Um, The, I also know that at least in the, the overall on the strength and conditioning field, I feel like they're, especially from like a hypertrophy or a a strength-based research study, you usually see they're grabbing college-age kids or um, untrained individuals and, you know, they say, hey, we see this kind of cross-sectional area improvement with this many weeks of 
this percent of load at one RM and here was what we found and it was significantly um, beneficial and here's here's how it might and then you see that study and you're like well okay so you got 22 year old kids and they don't really train and they're doing leg extensions for you know 75 percent of one rep max for 12 weeks and it goes up you know x amount of percent every so many weeks or whatever till failure and, and they measure and see this this improvement and then people are like oh well obviously it shows that if I improve my my leg extension my quads are going to grow and it's it's kind of wishy-washy because it's like well you could probably sit anybody that's not trained and put them on a leg extension machine for 12 weeks and their quads are going to get bigger I mean it's just specific adaptations to the demands that you're giving on your your clientele the question is I think for many of us we're even the average gym goer that would happen to be listening to this like even if you got a couple of years underneath your belt, you started to realize that you can't do what you did two, two years ago. You know, you're having to train a little bit more intelligently. You're having to wave your intensity and your volume and actually have some, some, some programming behind what you're doing. You got to use a little bit of science. You can't just throw stuff and just walk into the gym and do whatever you want and expect to see that, that progress to stay linear like that. But you, I guess I try to tell people at least in my gym um, that, you know, if you want to get really strong and, and, and see really good improvement, you got to kind of be a, a student of your, your sport and your thing. And that's kind of understanding how lifting weights, it doesn't mean you've got to understand, you know, what a insertion and origin is and, and, and the contractile properties of how the muscle works. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm, what I'm talking about, just go pick up some basic programming books and look at how people are, using different programming styles whether that be you know undulating or linear or block or, or whatever you have and that that will push you further in your training and then you can you can tinker around with it versus now today everyone goes and just hires an online coach and lets them do the thinking for you and then it's like well what do you do when that coach isn't there anymore or you, know, you can't afford them or you're just like i'm not paying 150 dollars a month to do this you're kind of back to square one just doing what you always did and it's the to circle back with the science is that that scientific aspect is is trying to give us a groundwork of where to go from for the advanced people I think so I, I personally know when I look at studies and, and when I they come across my feeds and stuff I'm kind of like you I initially go to the limitations first for at least myself I want to see what the demographic is and what what was preventing them from doing what they wanted to do and then and, and then I kind of go from there. I think I probably will steal that from you and start looking at the numbers too, because um, I definitely did not pay that much attention to standard deviation. And you're right, that gives you a little bit more of a snapshot of is everyone kind of falling in the same response or is there, as I guess, everybody all over the place. And that um, I hope people that can want to put more science into their training, they, they understand what that says because I, everybody just looks at the abstract and says, oh, this works or that doesn't work and that's not the way to, to go about it. So, um, Abstracts are tough because like, when, we, when we tell people to write an abstract, we like, limit it to maybe like 300, characters, 300 words. Or, you know, they want us to put so much in such a small window that you leave so much out of it. But like, as an, an author, that's the free part of every article. You can go across any journal, any article, whether it's Nature, JSCR, ACSM. The abstract's always free. So we put this sweet little like catch hooks, the important piece of data right there that you want to take away. 
but if you want to go see the rest of it, you know, go find an open access, go find someone else. But it never tells the abstract doesn't tell the full story that I think a lot of people get misled based on just reading that stuff. And I think as much as I don't enjoy sitting in a statistics class, I think just taking like right now, there's a lot of the free classes online not about statistics that universities are such offering. Just taking a refresher course on statistics, I think will help a lot of people look at the results because whether you're looking at a t-test or repeated measures over time, like that tells that starts to give the picture even bigger and bigger because if I'm doing a repeated measure and I'm looking over, you know, say 12 weeks, so maybe a small, you know, a decent training block here. And if I see the results from week one to four, four to eight and four to 12, and between four and 12, that the, the return on the investment starts to really disappear. At the end of it, they say a 12 week intervention, you know, increase their squat by 25%. But really it was only the, the eight weeks or the four weeks that improved it. So don't, don't carry that study out for 12 weeks. Don't, don't continue to do it because your return on investment after eight weeks is no longer there. But when you report the data, you may just see 12 weeks improved squat performance, but you don't need to do it for 12 weeks if you don't need to. Yeah. yeah. So that little refresher in statistics, I think helps that you can break down what their study is really showing or what they may hide in the data. Not that they're intentionally trying to deceive you or yeah, lie to yeah. you, but when you're looking for a practical application, you don't want to do more than you need to. Yeah. Um, and we're going to kind of segue into this is that once, as you're doing this research and things that you're looking at, um, once you get your PhD from Kansas state, what, what do you hope to do with that? Whether that be doing more studies or whether you're, you're teaching and how you're going to use your, your experience actually practically in the field with, and also academically, how are you going to use that in your, with your PhD, uh, moving on with, with your career and, and helping other people? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> I wish I had a, a really definitive answer because it feels like it changes every couple months as, <laughs> as you get frustrated with writing, you're like, I don't, I don't want to write anymore. I don't want to be a researcher. And then you collect the data and you're like, Oh, I love research. Like this is mm -hmm. fun. So it, it comes and goes in waves and you just never have to deal with that as part of the process. But I, I enjoy being on a university campus. There's just something about it. There's a reason why everybody shows up for homecoming. There's a reason why we all have an attachment to our, our schools. And there's just something about the environment here that I, I really like. And when you get students who are excited about the material and excited to become an a practitioner or whatever, it gets you excited and it gets you want to do better in the, in your own research. So I'd like to stay within um, a university setting, a research setting. I want to continue to build on tools that will make strength conditioning coach professionals and of the other sort, their job easier. Like I know we always say it's, it's an art with a science, but I, I want to make the science make your art easier. Like what information can I give you that you don't have to spend so many hours programming. That was always my least favorite part about programming and working with clients was, was that was writing the, the programs. I never had full confidence in it because I was always worried about the, what if this person doesn't respond or how do I know they're making the progress that I want them to do? So I want to continue to build tools and metrics that allow coaches to sort of alleviate those fears 
because you know, I think about strength conditioning coaches at a collegiate level and you're limited to the amount of hours you can have your athlete and a limited amount of time and there's so much pressure on them to succeed. But how do you know if it's working? How do you know they're progressing the right way? And how do you count for those freshmen who aren't quite there compared to your seniors, but you can't give them different training programs completely? Like how can we give you a metric to do that? And so that's that's what I want to continue to do with the research is to provide that for you. I don't think that I'm ever going to start like some company to charge you for it. That to me isn't isn't helping the field. Um, and then um, whether it means you know presenting at conferences, I have yet to present at JSCR just because it doesn't over it overlaps with some other conferences that I I attend. Um, but providing those those that information in an open access form, which is some of the, the research is going to that where it's open access. You don't have to get through a paywall to get to it. And I think if we go open access, we, we push the field more because I, I need feedback from what you guys are doing and what works. So then I can then go test in the lab and figure out how to improve it. But if there's not this communication back and forth, it, it doesn't, doesn't help. We, we, we hinder each other. So I think in these open access worlds and at the JSCR and the European College of Sports Science can start to push like this practitioner and researcher environment so that we can do better to help each other. Um, and so that's, that's where I'd like to work. There's not really an environment that facilitates that the best. Like I don't want to be just a consultant and collecting people's other people's data and doing it, which some people do. Um, so I kind of have to make my own job title, my own role. And my, my advisor does not, does not like that answer when I tell her I want to be a, <laughs> I was like, she asked me my first year here. She said, what do you want to do long-term? I said, I want to be a traveling academic. She goes, that doesn't fucking exist. <laughs> yeah. And, they, um, that I definitely know that the, the, the field obviously needs that. Cause like, like I said, there's no, there's no perfect program. It doesn't exist. Um, and it, it probably never will, but the more, the more information and more data that we can get as coaches, whether it be through studies or, updated textbooks the way that the information is presented to undergrads so they're coming in with better better stuff because I, I remember <clears throat> one of our staff <clears throat> members that we just hired he's trying to take his CSES and the whole COVID thing pushed back his date that he was supposed to take it so <clears throat> but I, I have my old NSCA book from when I took it and that was 2011 2012 something like that and uh, I was kind of just flipping through the book because it was the second edition. He's like, I've got like the fourth or fifth. And I was like, I'm, I'm sure there's some updates in there. They're, they're freaking better be. Um, and I was looking through some of the stuff and I was like, man, I look at my training programs. I'm like, I don't do a lot of this kind of doesn't sit well with me anymore. Like there's some good information in here, but uh, I don't know if I want my kid working up to a 10 rep max, you know, out of season. That, that doesn't exactly make a whole lot of sense. I don't know why I would, would do that. Um, so that, that the study and the data that you're trying to work with and then obviously present and, and get from those coaches. I think, I think a lot of coaches can tell you the NSCA is, it's great. There's a lot of great information, but you almost have to change your line of thinking to pass the exam to what the, the data shows when those were published versus what we're actually doing now in the field. Cause we're like, okay, we know that we can't, some of those, the sample programs they have and they're like, I just can't do this with, 50 athletes it's not feasible and for some colleges and universities the resources don't even make it feasible you might only have five squat racks and not every kid can control the rest limits within this range and we can you know make sure that the loads stay at this because i know that whenever i was in those rooms and even in my own training 
if it says I'm supposed to do something that, you know, I'm supposed to bench 300 for a set of three, I can say right now more than likely I'm probably going to do 295 or 305 just because I don't want to mess with the two and a half pound shit. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, and that happens a lot in the weight room too. You see kids that just straight up say, oh, I got, you know, 350. Yeah, we're putting three plates and a 25 on each side. Just call it 365 because it's way easier to deal with. And um, that, that doesn't exist necessarily in, in studies, unfortunately. And we can't, we got to optimize our resources. So we want to see those. I like that, that that gap is trying to be closed from a coach and an academic and that we can have somebody like you on our, our side that, you know, wants to make our job easier. Cause I, I will agree with you. Sometimes for me, programming is fun, but when I'm programming, let's say for like a 10 year old, that just makes me want to rip my face off because it's so simple. It, it's so repetitive. And it's just like, you know, I, I feel like I don't have to even write it down but all of our kids get a, a booklet of what their training is. And we actually try to teach them ownership. So they're writing down their weights or they're check marking. They do an exercise for that many sets and reps. And it, it, at the same time, you know, like where's the, for me, where's the research on what a training program should look like for a 10 year old kid. You know, we, we kind of know that strength training is a beneficial aspect when the, the, the loads are intelligently managed and movement quality is pushed over quantity but we don't have any idea what exactly their training program should look like versus a 12 year old, because now you got to start talking about puberty and how that affects their rate of growth. Cause not everybody hits puberty the same. Everybody grows the same. Um, you know, their, their biological age and their chronological age are never going to match up in that time frame. So that, that kind of gets a little bit all over the place. So I guess as somebody that works with kids, you know, what, um, have you happened to see anything study related with, strength and conditioning from kids that you've kind of came across while you're yeah. at Kansas State? You know, I haven't really done a lot of uh, youth work, but I, I did just listen to Professor Ross Tucker down in uh, South Africa the other day, and he was talking about the difference between, and I, this might be a little biased because I know, I know your, uh, your background, but uh, he was talking about how some parents try to specialize their kids so, so early and because they've heard this 10,000 hour rule and all the other stuff. And he just went on this, you know, a mini rant about how terrible that really can be for your youth athletes and just exposing them to so many different stimulus, you, right? You have no idea what someone's going to respond to. You don't know whether they're going to find something they really enjoy, you know, whether it be like gymnastic based movements or weight training, like clearly, you know, with your wrestling background and you really loved being in the weight room and being in that training environment. Well, some students, their parents may be wrestlers and weightlifters, but they may love running and that may be with a passion. So trying to force an individual into an environment that they don't really enjoy, they don't really like the train. You could have the world's best training program written right in front of them, but you're never going to get the results that you would if a kid who's bought into that sort of uh, training style. So I'm, I'm in the camp of keeping your training variability rather high with, with youth and let them sort of predispose to what they're good at. And we've sort of seen the Chinese and the Scandinavians do this where like the Chinese, they expose you to a ton of different sports when you're young and you know, maybe you see, show a propensity for, for racket sports. Well, we start to then, 
up your exposure to racket sports, maybe up to, you know, starting at like 15% of all your sports is racket sports and 90% is other basic skills. And then you continue to show propensity for that. Now you're up to 25 or 50% of, of that kind of activities. Um, and slowly they start to figure out what exactly of those sports, racket sports, maybe it's badminton, maybe it's tennis. And then, you know, now that you, you enjoy it and you show an ability for it, that's the kind of sport you do. Um, but as you know here that you know, if dad played football, you're playing football, so you better like it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that, um, the sports specialization thing, <clears throat> I know that I, I've read the sports gene and then range that recently came out within the past like, year, year and a half or whatever it was, and it, it talks about that. And I, I kind of talked to our parents about that a little bit too, and I'm like, don't get – you might hear this 10,000 hour rule. And I was like, don't, don't listen to that necessarily, so to speak. And I was like, if you want to read these books, I got them. You can take them home and read them. I, I, I don't care um, that, you know, the more you can subject your kid to different things, the earlier they are, the better off they're probably going to be. I can't say for sure, but just, you know, the, the research and the studies have shown that that is generally the case. You get your outliers just like uh, Tiger Woods, but um that if you can do that, that's good. And that's where we kind of come in and I explain, you know, if your kid is in sixth or seventh grade and is already a one trick pony, we are probably the most valuable thing that you're doing for your kid because we're going to move them in planes and motions and loading patterns that they are not going to get on the field, which is a good thing, an injury preventative type of training altogether, just because they're doing these things safely loaded in a controlled environment you know it's not in a, a random sport or, or activity so that we can kind of control that a little bit where like if your kid just kept playing football all the time all the time all the time like it's no wonder why he's getting banged up or if, you know the, the girl is always running cross country and that's all she's ever done is just run straight forward you know what happens when you move her into different planes you you start getting her in the transverse and the frontal plane and she starts to break down <clears throat> that's that's where we have to have that conversation and I think most of our parents have kind of started to like initially I got some I don't want to say I got like resistance but, you know I was just suggesting you know, hey try to get your kid to try something else I'm not saying that he has to like it if he doesn't like it then let him stop but you know you never know because I was that kid like you said with wrestling I wrestling was introduced to me so late but I tried so many different sports between baseball and basketball and tennis and gymnastics and all these other things and when I got to wrestling like I just I knew my body and the way it worked that you know I was already athletic no matter what I did and then you compound that with the weight room and some mat time and it, it turns out to be all right and maybe that's why I got to be a decent power lifter is because I I was comfortable in learning new tasks very well and that the weight room was something I attached to but that the uh, I'm trying to think I want to say this the uh the the training for the kids is something that is very is very novel still it's relatively new and our parents have done a good job in trusting us like hey you know we tell all of our kids that you know you can't even use a barbell in our facility until you're in eighth grade I don't care how strong you are in seventh grade that I'm not going to put a barbell in your back or or in your hands we've got you know 145 pound dumbbells and 100 pound sandbags like we got plenty of ways that we can load you they're tremendously safer from an exercise selection standpoint and because you're growing like I don't want to start compressing vertebral discs too early and, and, and things like that where you know the the science is kind of mixed from what I've seen but you know just as my due diligence as a coach 
I, your parents are paying me a premium price to take care of you and get you better. I'm going to do that. And then if you can earn that barbell and that's something that you and your parents, which we talked to them about, just wants to implement into your training, I will do that. If some girls, I'm like, hey, I can already tell this 16-year-old girl that runs cross country, we're not barbell squatting. It just, it, it's not happening. There's no reason to, to train the squat pattern that way with her. We can goblet squat her all day because there's no way she's goblet squatting 145 pounds pound dumbbell and that that's what i hope that the science can eventually kind of drift towards is that we don't need that you don't necessarily have to you have to be you have to be, have some kind of experience to know where to call like the back squat might the science might show the back squat's great for improving quad strength but you know how many studies are probably done on the goblet squat for the same population Right. I don't know. But as a coach, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of great progress with just the goblet squat with 90% of my clients. And you look at people like uh, Dan John, uh, obviously, I mean, you know this, he's one of my favorite coaches that I've ever listened to or read. Um, and his whole thing about like just doing stuff like goblet squat, like it's, it's extremely beneficial and it teaches slightly different movement pattern, slightly different you know, weight positioning, but you're still getting activation from the same muscle groups. And I think one of the things that I learned when I was in at Minnesota from a uh, professor now up in North Dakota was this uh, delete and repeat sort of paradigm that I haven't seen a whole lot since, but it was, I think it came out of the, the, the Russian text where, you know, you don't, you don't always back squat because eventually you, that stimulus, you know, you run out of variability that you can use with that, you know, percentages and loads and rest periods, but you know, your return on investments starting to decrease and then just moving to a front squat is going to then increase the response that you're getting from the muscles and from the, the training stress. And then, you know, say you front squat for six weeks and you go back to back squat and your body hasn't seen it in a while. So it sort of feels like it's a new, a new stress again and your adaptations go up not, not back to where you were when you first time you squatted, but they go up from where you left them last time you're back squatting. And so, you know, if that's, if that's a thing, I would try to keep those back squats for as late as possible for uh, a youth athlete, wait till they're in college where they can really maximize the potential of that back squat, but you know, use the goblet squat now, especially like, when we look at like, infants when everyone says like how should you squat and we will look at an infant we're like squat like that like how they drop into that squat like i think a goblet squat is a, is a great method to get people to squat like that yeah and yeah. I, I, it's not it's not as it's not as pretty it doesn't make the covers the magazines it doesn't you know we're not watching you know eddie hall goblet squat you know a 500 kilo kettlebell like it, it, it's not it's not maybe not as pretty and people think of it more with the old russian training but you know those things have value so does the sandbag so does the, the med ball stuff and I, but i think they just don't get the uh, attention as you know, i think when we say we want to standardize a training protocol and a back squat is pretty easy to standardize we want to, you know, make each athlete put it in the exact same spot on their, you know, a low bar squat, high bar squat. We make sure that each one is using the standardized method. We make the standardized depth in the squat. We standardize the tempo. 
But I think when you say we want a goblet squat and we want to put that in a study protocol, how do we, you know, how hard do we have the arms up for the goblet squat? Yeah. Is it, is a low, there's not, there's not a low goblet squat. There's not a high goblet squat. You know, do you have it close to your chest? Do you have it slightly out? Like how, I mean, these, these are things that we would need to consider when putting that out there. But as a, as a coach, you'd be like, I, I don't really care where it is in the goblet squat. I just want to know goblet squat compared to a back squat. But yeah. if I were to submit that to the university to do a study, they're like, no, it's got to be standardized. They all have to hold the weight in the exact same spot. The, the weight needs to be similar in size for each individual or whatever it is. So I think that's sort of why a back squat has gotten a front squat. Those really easy to standardize exercises have get more, more of the research. Yeah. So one of the last things I want to talk to you about, uh, I know that uh, you've obviously competed weightlifting. You, you like weightlifting. Weightlifting has been definitely something that you probably keep in your training majority of the time. It looks like what um, from a, from a research study, from what you've kind of seen from uh, weightlifting and, and HRV, I know you said the strength training is kind of, is kind of mixed in the air. Where do you see the the HRV going with either weightlifting or strength related aspects? What um, what do you hope that that can evolve? I know that we also talked about the velocity based training to kind of try to dictate tate loads. Is there is there just a lack of studies on the strength training with the HRV, or has there just been some limitation issues or just you know the, the studies that have been done maybe they're just not there's not a lot enough consistency to kind of show the same um the same information that other researchers can use to try to help build some ideas to kind of to build a backbone off of yeah there, so i had have not come across a whole lot of data on hrv and strength training um whether or not it's because individuals don't find it as interesting whether or not it doesn't apply as well to strength to weightlifting i would probably be more in that camp that it maybe it's not as effective as it is in endurance training um so it's also something we're starting to look into we did do a study going on three years ago which tried to use hrv guided training with crossfit athletes and what we found was that they had some, so this was in sort of untrained or lightly trained individuals. They, they weren't looking to compete for any sort of competition in their training. They were just maintaining quality of life exercise or doing, you know, slightly less. And we found with HRV guided training that the return on VO2 max and squat bench and overhead press, there wasn't a a whole lot of difference between being guided by HRV and predetermined training. The only real difference we found was that the HRV guided training trained less and they had less times at high intensity. So what you could take from that is HRV for strength training. You know, I know that CrossFit is sort of this mixed modality. It's um, not the exact same as you know weightlifting, but you may not have to push it as often as you think you have to push it to get the returns. And I think 
that's sort of the issue with American style weight training is that I have to push it every day because if I'm not pushing it, somebody else is, and they're getting better than me. Yeah. And I think that's something we need to move away from and focus more on the quality and maybe overlaying HRV and this velocity based training is going to provide us a greater insight to it and telling people that, you know, you really need to, to back it off. Um, I know there's company like, uh, I think it's whoop out there. That's now trying to quantify your, your training load from CrossFit and strength training kind of stuff. But again, it's, it's HRV on resistance training and the, the data out there just, it's not there to say that HRV really works for strength training, but you know, I'm sure that most athletes, you know, at this point, I think are starting to include, even if they are a weightlifting athlete, some sort of foundational aerobic exercise into their training, whether it's, you know, sprints or if it's, you know, just slight conditioning. I think when I started adding to that and when, you know, obviously, you know, Amanda is a, my wife is a much better, much better weightlifter than I will ever aim to be or could possibly be. Um, but she, when she started adding a little more aerobic stuff into her just to keep the body from feeling trash from all that weightlifting, she started to feel better. And so I think that's where the HRV could help is you know, not telling you you should always endure and strain, but if you can use it to see like, Hey, today might be a good day to not weightlift and actually do a little light recovery endurance training to supplement it. Maybe that's where we see the blend, but if there's other coach, if there's coaches out there that to want to work with that are using velocity based training and want to like work with me or, you know, have a chat about how we can overlap their HRV and their velocity based stuff to maybe see if there's this connection, you know, you gave, gave out my info. They can always shoot me a thing. We could see if there's a way we can work it out. I know, yeah. Uh, my good buddy, Mike Caro, who's out on the East coast strength conditioning coach, we were trying to get something together, but once COVID broke out, it got really hard to, uh, continue going on that. It just got refocused on other things, but now the things starting to, to become a new normal uh, opportunity for that research is starting to open back up. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of glad you brought up the, the CrossFit stuff. Um, I didn't even really, at least looking through this, I didn't even, I, and I guess I should kind of let the people know that from what I've seen when you were able to train at, at Kansas State before the whole COVID thing was that you guys have your own like CrossFit-based facility at Kansas State that you guys are kind of doing your research out of. And I think that's one that's really cool that we're kind of bridging that practical space with the academic again that, that you're kind of closing that gap. But then you were, you were talking about the, the research that was done on the CrossFit and then maybe they don't have to push it as much as hard. Uh, I think it sounded to me like the, the demographic that you even talked about to me sounds like the average CrossFit person, right? Somebody that is not the first, usually the people that are walking into CrossFit for the first time probably have very minimal exercise background or at least a very light or they've maybe tried personal training and just didn't have a really good success with it. Or maybe it's outside of their price point because, you know, maybe a hundred and some dollars a month is, is relatively affordable where if you're buying, you know, two personal training sessions a week, depending upon where you live, it could be anywhere between 45 and $85 a session. So that starts to add up really quickly in terms of what you're paying and, you know, CrossFit, you can have that unlimited option that you can get to the gym whenever you want, but there's also the camaraderie. The plan is essentially in place. Granted it is scaled or 
it's essentially a one size fits all with a, a, a option to go up or down in terms of the difficulty. Um, what with with that, how do you think that the for the average person that's wanting to like lose weight and and maybe look at the CrossFit style of, of training, what do you modifications from what you're seeing in the, the studies from stuff like that that they need to to change? You said obviously pull back maybe just a little bit and that they don't have to go 100%. Because I know I look at some of those wads that I see that people are like, oh, dude, there's my wad today. And I'm like, man, I think you could have probably had a just a good of a workout with just a little bit less work because when you show up tomorrow, how are you going to feel tomorrow? And when we're talking about HRV, like you said, it's that sum. It's not just that one snapshot in time. It's the whole sum of everything that you're always doing from the training from 24 hours ago to 48, 72, whatever. And um, so I guess what, what recommendations do you have for the average person that kind of trains with a higher intensity based model maybe they do some strength training but at the end you know they're doing a a 15 10 15 20 minute conditioning circuit so to speak so when it comes to that like i i tell people again it comes down to your individual abilities you're you're not tia claire you're not matt fraser so the training that i think that people when they start doing crossfit is they think they have to do the all-out suffer for results sort of mentality. And I, I think that's maybe given CrossFit a bad rap. And um, I, you know, I should put the caveat is my, my advisor here, she is a CrossFit researcher. Um, we do have a CrossFit facility in our, our building because she, uh, after she was the University of Hawaii, she found CrossFit and she wanted to, to use it for exercise intervention. So I should put the caveat is we do do a lot of CrossFit research here and it's looking at using it as an extra intervention, but um, by no means do I have any like bias or financial input from, from CrossFit. Um, I've actually tried to figure out how we can either disprove or manipulate CrossFit to make it something different. Um, but I think the, the benefit of CrossFit is having that ability to, to RX or manipulate the volume or intensity of what you have. And I think when, so like you talked about the earlier when you send those programs to the, the kids and they see it on the, on the program at back squat at 85% for five sets of six, they feel like they have to do that because you know, at the end of it, underneath that, you didn't say, Oh, well, if you feel like shit, you can do 65% for five by five. Like they, they don't, they don't have that option to fall back on. Right. It's, I think the benefit of having that, that CrossFit is, is, you have, this is the prescribed workout if you, if you are able to handle it, but if you're not able to do those intensities or those weights, here's this other version that you can do. And there's, there's no shame in doing that. There's no, um, nobody looking down on you for doing that, that, that other version. So I think if you're not feeling it using the, that other version is all right. You don't have to be RX all the time. It's great if you are, but especially when, when you start out, that high intensity stuff is going to blow you up. Your, your HRV is going to go up. You know, your hormones are slightly going to go up, especially cortisol and testosterone are going to, are going to flare up. So it's, it's about the, the long-term destination. And it's not about this quick trip. So what, try to take away from CrossFit or this mixed modality is where do you want to be in six months or eight months with it? And what you do in that one single workout isn't necessarily going to 
determine whether or not you get there faster or slower or what that destination looks like. So take it, take it slow, get there one step at a time and let, let the adaptations and the changes occur and slowly push your body to get there. But don't feel like day one, you got to do the same thing as everybody else like that's in the gym that's been there for six years. And so I, I see that a lot with, with the gym we have here as we have all age groups, we have undergrads in their 18s, you know, to early twenties, but we also have faculty that are in their fifties and sixties that come in and seeing them either go RX or they, they modulate. I think that helps encourage new people that they don't have to be, there's not a, a uniform fit that they all have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, not only that, I think there's, there's some, I, I hope I'm going to get, um, uh, I'm having a, a lapse on what his name is right now off the top of my head, but he runs box programming. Um, he, uh, last name's Brown. It'll come to me eventually. But anyways, he, he kind of does programming for boxes as a whole. So his, his whole business model is doing programming for, the CrossFit gyms. And then, um, he has the, the uh, different options of what they can kind of do based upon if they're doing three or four times a week or the prescribed. And he, he, he told me whenever I talked to him, um, last year over the, over, just over the phone, um, he was kind of picking my, my brain about some, whether he wanted to get his master's degree or not and whether I regretted it or I liked it. But anyway, that's besides the point he was saying that he sees too many CrossFit gyms trying to program for the elite CrossFitter versus programming for the average trainee and that if they if they focused on the average trainee not only would the, the business improve because you know your workouts are more skilled towards the average person trying to lose weight feel better move better um you know that's probably the one thing that i give i tell my hat to cross it's not only has it grown the other strength sports but it's gotten people to kind of understand that hey lifting weights is actually good for you it's it's not going to make you a bodybuilder when you go out and and learn how to do a front squat or a back squat. That's not going to make you Hulk out or anything. Um, but that he said, you know, then you have, he has separate options to where that box can purchase the CrossFit athlete programming where that person wants to compete at the regional level or, and or higher, you know, they're, they're trying to be the best CrossFitter they can be, not the healthiest version of them that they can be. And I think that's the number one stipulation that the CrossFit needs to figure out as a whole. And that ultimately comes down to the box owner, right? Whoever's doing the programming as a whole is the one that needs to sit down and ask themselves that question because we get, we get asked, you know, should my, what's wrong with my kid? Should my kid do CrossFit or, you know, my kid has done CrossFit and here's what we found. And, you know, we just tell them that, you know, from a, from a sports performance standpoint, it's, it's iffy, you know, it depends what sport you play. It depends how good to shape your kids in. It depends what exercises they're going to use because the bad thing is the exercise changes every day. And we know that to get better, you have to specify a little bit with the exercise selection that you're going to do. So, you know, if you want to work on triple extension, you, you might have to do your cleans and you might have to do those consistently where your wad might have, cleans for time here and then you know you're not going to see that again for three or four weeks what's the carryover going to be to the field of court you know the the sport and is but if you're just trying to lose weight yeah it may not exactly matter what 
exercise that you pick with week in and week out as long as that like what your your endurance research is kind of showing that you know as long as you're getting that adaptation and, and building up some kind of aerobic capacity and getting a good quality workout in and your your overall you're able to recover from session to session to session that can get, make you a more fit person i guess or or client Right. I think and there's, there's two things there that, that I want to touch on is one that, you know, you mentioned that they want to, pro- people want to program for the sexy. They want to program for the withdrawals of people attention. But, you know, I think we all sort of suffer from that. Right. When, when you even talked about earlier, when you have the, the young athletes are just starting, like they're going to respond to anything. And those programs just aren't exciting to write. And I think we all suffer that within personal training, within CrossFit, like, the and even with coaching sport coaching right you look at these guys they like oh look at bill belichick does this or whoever you know the different coaches do this or that and now the the sport coaches want to do this in their training it's like you don't have the same athletes you don't have the same stuff it's not a one-fit-all program you can't just throw it all in there and so i think in all sport levels of sport and performance that we, we need to stop looking at what other people are doing and methodologies and just saying well if they're doing that we should be doing that as well and focus on the people you have in front of you and what's best for them. And the, the second piece we talked about is, you know, I see it a lot now and I see it more now than I think ever is it's not about the exercise you do, right? It's not whether about you do cleans or you do back squats. It's the, those, those are the tools to get you the adaptation. Those are the tools to get you power, but, they're not the only ways to get you power, right? Sprinting is power and box jumps, you know, whether you think it's the American way or the Russian way, uh, create power, cleans get you, you know, um, kettlebell work gets you power. So it's about the, the stress you're getting. And there's, there's multiple ways to get that, that stress. And I think people program exercises and not stress response or stress adaptations. And I think, I've seen it more now where people are like, you can have varied training as long as your varied training is building up upon those residual training volumes is I need to get power training in so many, every so many days before those adaptations start to drift off. I need to get aerobic training in some form before those adaptations start to drift away. And I think now that some of that old Russian text is becoming more popular, that people are starting to move away from, oh, I have to front squat three times a week because it's a front squat. Well, I don't give a, I don't care about what the exercise is. I care about what you're trying to get from that exercise. And I think when we move to that perspective is what are we getting from the stimulus and not from the actual, the exercise itself. I think we'd be great, better athletes. That's, that's a good way to put that. The, you know, the, the programming, I'm trying to think how you just said that the programming, the stress response versus the exercise what you what you're wanting from the exercise the actually said the the exercise is just the the tool in the toolbox that you chose to get the job done you know i can use the screwdriver or i can use the drill it depends on which athlete i have but i'm going to use the screwdriver or the drill whether how you know how many different uh experiences they've got i guess so to speak depending upon what you would use so that was um that was really good i am trying to think if there's anything else that's all i've got written down i guess is there anything else that we didn't get to that you would like to talk about, whether what you're studying or what you saw, or maybe we kind of skipped over something fast and it, it 
kind of piqued your interest on something else? Uh, you know, you sort of skimmed across. You said it, topic for a later discussion was the the guy he was talking to about doing his master's degree, okay. whether or not not it was valued or not. And so I get that I get that a lot. I hear people ask questions like, oh, "Okay, you're doing your PhD, like, but you're an applied scientist. Like, what what is the the goal from it? Like, why didn't you just go and work in the field? What is the benefit of going to the school?" Um, and I'm, I know since we went to the same undergrad, you have the same experience as me. It's like when you, when you graduate from a bachelor's in exercise science or kinesiology or whatever it is, it, it's a weird thing to graduate from because there's not like, hey, you're going to go do X, Y, and Z. It's sort of like we give you this knowledge. Go figure out what you want to do with it, right? It's not like you get an engineering degree and – at every semester at Purdue, there's, there's an engineering job fair. We're like, Hey, go work for Coke, go work for whoever. Then this is what you're going to do. Kinesiology, sports science, exercise science. There is no direct path. There is no uniform direction of what you're going to do. And so that's, I think that's the exciting part about our field is you can become an individual and just show what you're really interested in and then specialize in that. Like you have, people who are specialists in endurance training, people like Andy Jones, who I don't know if you've watched the, the Breaking 2 documentary, but he's a exercise physiologist that specializes in endurance performance. Um, we have people like you who are specialists in powerlifting. Like you can get, you, you'll have all the base same knowledge, but you can see that there's so many different directions that you can take that, which I don't think you get in other opportunities with other fields. Yeah. And so, Continuing, and I think the benefit of people continuing on to their masters is there's stuff that I'm sure that you learned at Purdue that was different than what you learned at Indiana State. Yep. And stuff I learned at Minnesota that I didn't learn at, at Purdue. It's the different contextual pieces of it. And the thing you also have to consider is each each university, each program has like a specific area of interest that, that they work within. So Minnesota was heavy endurance training because my advisor there, she was a marathon runner and most of her students were marathon or, you know, extreme endurance athletes. So everything was endurance there, but other places are resistance training like, um, Bill Kramer or Will Kramer, yep. um, resistance training. So it depends. Like if, so if you were under him, you wouldn't have ever seen really any aerobic based stuff. So, the benefit of deciding to choose to get a master's is you don't know what your program is focused on when you come in as undergrad. You just say you want to do kinesiology and then you learn by going through that your area has been focused on endurance training or whatever. But that, that master's program or that PhD or the additional studies ends up giving you the science to the piece that you didn't necessarily learn during your undergrad. And not to say that you can't do it by listening to people talk and by you know, training other people, but I think it's a really good experience to go get a different perspective by doing your master's work that you didn't get as an undergrad. And as I said before, we get that statistical underpinning and, you know, you brought up, um, range. We talked about range and, um, what was this other book? The sports, sports gene. gene. Yeah. So that, that right there is like a prime example of how statistics only tell you part of the story because we kind of skipped over it, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, but there was this follow-up study that looked further into that. 
and there was the range between that was three thousand hours and twenty five thousand hours. Yeah, it was big. It was huge. That's huge, right? So that master's program gives you a little touch in that statistics so that you can understand when you go to interpret your studies that you're looking for your long term that you can now have the knowledge to actually do that appropriately. Yeah. And I know with ISU, um, they are one of the professors there, uh, Dr. Finch, he's really big in biomechanics, really big with dart fish. And I, I know he's got experience working with Olympic trial athletes and looking at, I want to say it was the javelin throw. And they were looking at the biomechanics of joint angles of, you know, the shoulders and how they're stepping and what might be the optimal um, position to throw the the javelin and, and things like that. And then, and I will say that my graduate degree was very heavy on biomechanical based stuff and motor learning. Those were the two big areas that they were big on that we, we looked at and, and did from our, our studies and stuff that we were doing. But I, I obviously went there for the coaching aspect. I kind of wanted the, the understanding how to put it practically together with the science. I thought it was a good blended program. Um, there were certainly some things I could have benefited on, but um, I, like you said, that, that master's program. And I, I, the guy that I talked with, I told him that, you know, I liked that it made the big thing that I liked about it from undergrad is that undergrad, everyone's kind of given the same set of information. And then you have to figure out how you want to use that base knowledge for where you want to go, like you talked about. And then when you get to the grad school, you can specialize or focus a little bit more towards what you're more interested in and, and, and dig deeper into the science and really get, you know, you know, hands deep on what you, not only enjoy but maybe how you can use that and so I, that was my recommendation i was like you know, if you enjoy the science then go find a master's program that's big in in the science whether it might be you know the anatomy and phys aspect of it or like you know mine was biomechanics i like the biomechanics i, I like watching how people move and and trying to optimize position um and i thought that was something i could apply where you know understanding phys can help me a little bit but you know i'm not going to talk to these kids about how to you know, activate mTOR and things like that to improve muscle hypertrophy and strength. Like that, that's just not realistic, <laughs> realistic. So um, that was, that was a good point with the graduate stuff. It's, and I would say that also now with our, with the undergraduate degree of exercise science related field, it's almost the point where you're going to have to do some kind of education past that just because there's so many people in the field that that's, it's oversaturated to an extent. And the unfortunate thing is if you want to train people, technically you don't even have to go to school as long as you're 18 years old and you can pass that, you know, certified personal training exam. You're from a legal standpoint, you can train people and get your paperwork and your insurance and get all that business stuff taken care of, which I, that's a talk for another day, probably with yeah. some other people. But, um, you know, that's the goal idea. What I think with the undergrad initially was to get more, um, educated undergrads and how to train and work with people in the fitness industry. But then now we've got those avenues of physical therapists, um, you know, academics like yourself doing research and then, you know, your strength coaches, um, exercise physiologists and cardiac rehab and there are those different avenues. And that's what I tell the list of undergrads that come to us through interns and stuff. I'm like, you know, figure out what you want to do because if you want to do probably anything else, but be in the semi-private or private model like me, continuing education is probably going to be the number one thing that you're going to have to, to do to, to figure out what you want to do because everyone at the graduate or the undergraduate level has the same education you do. 
got to figure out a way to stand out on your, your resume and your piece of paper more than the, the next person. Yeah. Have you, have you seen this new field that's sort of being generated like the, uh, the data scientist for sport? I have not. No. Oh man, this is, I think this is one of the most exciting things that I see coming out right now because I mean, we talked about there's this, this gap between the academics and the coaches, right? There's, there's gotta be something in the middle, right? This, this relay person. And so it's really popular in Europe and Australia, but it's slowly becoming more popular in the U S where there's these sports data scientists that work for teams that are sort of this branch between the academics. And I know right now it's most common in soccer in the U S like the Seattle Sounders up there. They have three people that have like degrees in like X phys or sports science but they also have the understanding of like the statistical modeling and they are using that information, um, like the catapult data and they're giving this data back to the sport coaches and the, the strength conditioning coaches about how to then now manipulate the training. So the strength coaches aren't having to go do all this monitoring of their athletes. You have these sports scientists who are out watching, you know, the practice and they're collecting the data from the practice from the, the GPS, the time sprinting, the, you know, acceleration data. And then they're also getting the data back from the actual weight room stuff. And they're creating these profiles for the athletes and looking at the shifts so that they then can relay that information to sport coaches and training conditioning coaches about how to modulate the training. And with, you know, to be able to do that, you had to have some understanding of the statistics and some understanding of how to create these, these little models um, under fitness and fatigue and stuff like that. And it, it's a cool field that's growing. It's, um, as I said, it's, it's big in Europe and it's slowly coming here, but it's an area for people who don't necessarily want to be in the weight room. They, they, they like the science piece of it. You know, you get to have athletes, professional athletes be your, your subjects and you're getting to have that ability to manipulate and play a role in it. It's not maybe in the weight room or performance coach. And so I think it's a cool field that's coming out. We, there's, I think Oklahoma Thunder has a person doing it. Um, some other the professional teams are slowly getting into it. But as you start to see the results coming back from it, I think they're going to start to have small staffs of like, you know, five to eight people on these teams, especially, at, you know, NFL level right. when there's so much at risk there that it's a new avenue. So if individuals are looking for something different, I think that's an area they might want to pursue. Yeah, that's. That's uh that's definitely interesting. I know they were I know when we were at Purdue, um Cameron's last name, I know one of the strength coaches, his name was Grant. Can't his last name right now. Um, uh, Thorpe. Grant yeah, Thorpe. Yeah, I think he was messing around with some of that with Purdue at that time. I don't think catapult was out as much, but I know that he was he had experience with that at whatever I think he was at the Packers before then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he brought that that idea from the Packers to Purdue when we were there and they were trying to figure out how to use that within the collegiate obviously college is different than than pro um but they were trying to figure out how to use that data whenever I was was in the room and um that was not I wouldn't say new but that was that was falling on the strength and conditioning staff at the point where at least now if you have somebody that's actually specialized in the statistical side of the data you know it's it's unbiased you know, they have the numbers and they have the people and they just report the, the data to the coaches. There's not a, um, that's what they're good at. I'm not saying that the strength coaches couldn't run the data, but you know, like our, our 
our education comes more with understanding how to put together training programs and basic anatomy and physiology and exercise selection, not necessarily running data. So it, and then there's people like you, and you probably wouldn't mind necessarily being in that, that field, but there's other academics that just love doing the research and like, man, there's no way I'd want to be on the field collecting this crap. It's, it's not what I want to do. I just want to set up the studies and, and figure the results. That, that's a nice middle ground option i think yeah yeah it's a nice live action because it's it's you're not waiting to get the results you're not waiting to recruit like it's it's there and your decisions are being made tomorrow yeah. so it's cool you get to use you know your understanding of the physiology of what the team is wanting to get out of it and whether or not your player is going to be getting there or not and then you're not making the decision of what's push the athlete what's not you you know, here's where, here's where Brandon is. This is where he was before, you know, this is what we think. And then the performance coach and the sport coaches, they then make the, the call based off your, your recommendations. So I think it's a cool field. I think it's an opportunity that it's going to grow. And I hope to see, uh, especially in the U S I hope to see it grow more because I worry that, you know, we have a lot of those old school coaches who are just work hard, grind the athletes, but maybe we can have, you know, some scientific input of you don't always have to kill them to get something good out of it. Yeah. And, and, an educated work hard and an educated recover hard too. <laughs> right. We go work smart instead of work hard. I think that Sean art has something like that instead of, you know, hard work wins until, you know, someone works smart, something like that. I'm going to butcher his quilt, but he's got something about, you got to train smart as well. And you can't just work hard every day. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I think that's all I got for you. Um, I appreciate your time. There's a lot. There's a lot of good information in here. I mean, we had pretty much a good 90, 100 minutes worth of stuff. Um, I hope that you know everyone takes away some some stuff for you. And hopefully, if you're back in in Indiana any anytime soon, who knows what the COVID response that's going to be. But you know, if you're back up in Purdue or whatever, just let me and Adrian know so we can hopefully meet up with you either there or wherever you guys are. Happen back in Indiana. And I don't not we don't make it out to kansas very much i've only been out there twice but if we would not ever many, be out there i'd let you know not many people make it out to kansas <laughs> but you do learn when you get out here that that it's not it's not all flat yeah yeah, yeah. I, we kansas state is in the the flint hills so it's just rolling hills around us and then once you get past us that's where you get into uh the flat zone but hey if you come out this way um the wizard of oz the town that they shot it in was ju just up the road about 20 <laughs> minutes we'll take you there and we'll see if we get swept off our feet <laughs> all right man well i appreciate your time and uh tell amanda hey and hope you guys are doing well of course man tell adrian hey too all right see you man see ya thanks for listening to thirst for more podcast give us a follow on spotify itunes google and other streaming services Feel free to visit our website, thirstgym.com, that's T-H-I-R-S-T-G-Y-M.com, and click on the podcast tab to look over show notes and extra free resources. You can also give us a follow on Instagram, at Team Thirst, that's T-E-A-M, period, T-H-I-R-S-T, or you can give me a follow at B Smitley, that's B-S-M-I-T-L-E-Y, for more updates on future episodes to come. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley, and we'll catch you at the next episode.